Articles of Faith is a weekly interview show featuring scholars and writers who have written about the doctrines and teachings of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Articles of Faith is a production of Fair Mormon and is hosted by Nick Galetti. Daniel C. Peterson holds a Ph.D. from University of California at Los Angeles, is a professor of Islamic studies and Arabic at Brigham Young University, and is the founder of the university's Middle Eastern Texts Initiative, for which he served as an editor-in-chief until mid-August 2013. He has published and spoken extensively on both Islamic and Mormon subjects. He is the author, among other things, of a biography entitled Muhammad, Prophet of God. Formerly chairman of the board of the Foundation for American Research and Mormon Studies, or FARMS, and an officer, editor, and author for its successor organization, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, his professional work as an Arabist focuses on the Quran and on Islamic philosophical theology. Peterson is most recently president of the Interpreter found at mormoninterpreter.com. He's here today to talk about an article that he recently released for the Interpreter entitled Reason, Experience, and the Existence of God. So welcome, Daniel Peterson. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thank you for coming in. So uh, Dan Peterson, loved by some, agitated <laughs> to others, and probably a variety of opinions in between, but how does Dan Peterson view Dan Peterson? Dan Peterson is a lamb, harmless, mild-mannered, <laughs> Um, you know, I'm, I'm sometimes amazed at my public image, which is, you know, this fierce guy. Some people think I'm just nasty and vicious and <laughs> that's not how I see myself. I hope it's not how I come across to people who actually know me. I think what people sometimes don't get is the tongue is often firmly in cheek and, uh, I am having fun and I do take, um, yeah, it's not just having fun. I take ideas seriously. There are beliefs that I take seriously that, that I think uh, need to be and deserve to be defended. But um, but there is no malice in it. That's um, fair. So you have you also have a blog on Pathios, uh, yeah. called uh, and correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Sick et non. Sick et non. Yeah, it means yes and no. It's my way of you know pushing some things I like and denouncing things I don't like. <laughs> right. Well, I, I I had to look it up because I wasn't a big Latin person. Um, but how does that exactly other than saying yes to some things and no to others, how does that actually frame or project your, your opinions or your, your viewpoint on blogging? Yeah, well, it, it gave me an opportunity to, um, uh, to just spout off on anything I felt like talking about. Someone, someone once, I once commented about the old Farms Review that I edited for about a quarter of a century almost, and they said, well, the, the selection criterion for this, scene, this thing seems to be uh, whatever the editor wants to talk about. And I thought, very perceptive. Very good. <laughs> you know, it's a bully pulpit, and the, you know, the blog is even more so. Uh, you know, for example, um, uh, Fair, now Fair Mormon, at one point when they heard that I was starting a blog, wanted me to bring it in under them, which you know, I would have no objection to. I'm on Fair Mormon's board, except that I wanted to maintain the freedom to talk about other things besides religion. There's a lot of Mormonism in it, but I also talk about Islam, I talk about movies, I comment on trips I've taken, restaurants, and a lot of politics. I, I'm highly political. <laughs> That's um, one of your main charges, it yeah, seems like. Uh, you know, and people complain, oh, you're mixing religion and politics. I absolutely, I don't. I see them as different. I mean, I've gotten into a flap over this past few days over my defense of Harry Reid. Ah, yes, uh, you the, know, the famous bishop. Uh-huh, the bishop who said, you know, he doesn't, he's not a serious Mormon, he doesn't deserve a temple recommend. Look, I 
disagree with Harry Reid on virtually everything. I'm a, I'm a really strong conservative bordering on libertarian on economic issues. I do not agree with Harry Reid, but I also don't like to see people read out of the church over politics. Right. And, Very separate. Uh, yeah, would I be happy to go to the temple with Senator Reid? Yeah, I would. Would I vote for him? No. <laughs> so, but I can separate the two. But, you know, the, the fact was I didn't plan to get into blogging. We were thinking of launching a blog at the Maxwell Institute back in the days when I was still associated with it. But it went through so many meetings and mission statements and, you know, revisions of mission statements <laughs> and meetings to to revise mission statements that I couldn't take it. I came home one day. My daughter-in-law was living in the basement with my son at the time. She's a, She knows about such things. And I said, you want to help me set up a blog? We had it up and running within 20 minutes. No mission statement, no committee nothing. meeting, nothing. <laughs> I figured people will see what I'm up to as I do it. I don't need a mission statement for it. So that's what gave me the impetus there to do it is. the blog. So when you're not blogging, uh, you seem to have many other irons in many fires. Yeah, too many. Uh, <laughs> one of those, of course, is the uh, effort that we referred to earlier as the interpreter. Yeah. And I'm not entirely sure that enough people are aware of what the interpreter is or what its goals are as a foundation. So perhaps you could take a minute to give a brief introduction of the yeah. interpreter. Uh, the interpreter is... Um, is really an attempt to carry on the spirit of the old farms um, in a way. Uh, it came about, I have to get into some sort of distasteful history in a way to explain it. Um, you know, I had gone overseas partly in an effort to raise some money for the Maxwell Institute when all of a sudden out of the blue I got a note, an email informing me that, uh, that basically I'd been given the boot and that my vision, which had been the vision of the Maxwell Institute since its inception, you know, nearly three decades earlier, uh, was now going to be out the window. And um, it was pretty upsetting, ruined the trip. I was out of the country for another four or five weeks after that. Oh, man. Didn't enjoy it much. But I came back and some friends of mine who had been affiliated with farms of the Maxwell Institute before that said, look, we need to decide whether we should launch a new organization to carry on the old mission. And so we met... Um, about a week after I got back from overseas, uh, we decided we would launch such a thing. And within, I think it was nine days after that, uh, after that lunch meeting at the Olive Garden in Provo, uh, <laughs> we had launched the Interpretive Foundation, gotten the first article up. And, and as we're sitting here, uh, this coming Friday will be the 120th consecutive Friday oh, wow. uh, where we've published something every single week, at least one article. It's really remarkable considering we've been doing it on effectively a shoestring. But uh, some people have described it, and I agree, as farms in exile. <laughs> it's sort of <laughs> it's sort of the old gang to a okay. certain extent, trying to carry on with much lim much more limited resources and so on. The um, the the kind of effort that we were trying to do at farms and then at the Maxwell Institute in its early years. Well, well, both your professional work at BYU and and now, of course, your work with the interpreter addresses certainly scriptural, religious issues yeah. and the scholarship that surround that. But of course, in your your particular specialty is around Islam and the study of the Quran as its yeah. central scripture. So I'm kind of curious, when did you first say, hey, this Islamic stuff, We, we I want to <laughs> kind of look into this? Well, you know, I had several, uh, several experiences that sort of turned me in that direction. I remember attending a lecture that Hugh Nibley gave before my mission, I believe. Uh, in fact, I know it was. And um, in that lecture, he said, 
whatever you're doing, drop it and study Arabic. Now, he was in one of his Arabic phases. He would go through them occasionally. <laughs> They'd last a few weeks, I think. And then he'd be off to something else. He was that kind of a guy. But, um, but he really always did enjoy Arabic and the Arabs. And I was there in the lecture, and I was struck by that. So I began doing a little bit of Arabic, um, and I went on my mission. I was actually called on my mission to Beirut, Lebanon. Oh. Uh, now, the funny thing is I didn't go. I, I ended up not going, not because I wasn't willing, but um, I was. Uh, there were two sets of papers on me. Um, the set that I got called me to um, Zurich, Switzerland. The set that my stake president had said Switzerland, Zurich, parenthesis, Beirut, which actually makes more sense than okay. you would think because in those days, Switzerland being neutral – was okay. responsible for a large part of the world where the church could not operate out of the United States. So the Swiss mission president was responsible for everything all the way over to Afghanistan and everything in Africa, north of the Congo. So wow. the whole Middle East, Athens, everything else. And we had a district of missionaries in, in Beirut. It wasn't until I got to, uh, to Zurich where I asked, can anyone tell me where I'm spending the next two years? <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah, you're staying here in Switzerland. But, it, you know, the grass was sort of greener on the other side. It's ironic because there's almost no grass in Lebanon. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, that piqued my interest even more. So when I got back from my mission, I began to be more serious about Arabic. When I left BYU with an undergraduate degree in Greek and philosophy, I uh, decided I really wanted to do the Middle East. So... I went and lived in Israel for six months. I went and lived in Egypt after I was married for four years and uh, then came back and did a PhD. So with with that all under kind of the heading that you are a return missionary, you're now a professor, and you've taught all these different things, what then is the value, even a scholarly value, but also a faithful value perhaps, for the average Latter-day Saint to look at something like the Koran or studying Islam? Well, there are, there are a number of, of reasons to look at it from a Latter-day Saint point of view. First of all, it's a cousin religion. A lot of us don't recognize that. But, but Islam is, is related very closely to Judaism and Christianity. And so you look at the Quran, it has a lot of overlap with, with our scriptures and a lot of differences. You know, the creation is six days. Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden. They fall when tempted by Lucifer. The Lord calls a series of prophets, including Abraham and Moses, and eventually Jesus, who is regarded as one of the greatest of the prophets, though not divine. That is the crucial difference. Sure. But uh, he's born of a virgin and so on. He'll return again at the end of time. It's an interesting mirror in which to see our own religion reflected back a little bit differently. And uh, there, there are points of, of, as I say, overlap and points of difference, but also a lot of legendary material uh, that, is, um, that is parallel to specifically Mormon beliefs. I'm working on a book right now, for example, about the, the concept of the physical cosmos in the Quran. It'll be published, presumably, uh, by a, uh, a non-Mormon academic publisher. Um, but it's interesting. It's ideas of multiple heavens and ascension into the presence of God and all this sort of thing. I think will resonate with, with some Latter-day Saints. Interesting. Well, it does actually get kind of back into the topic of your article because this article, again, entitled Reason, Experience, and the Existence of God, touches upon is some Islamic writings yeah. mm -hmm. and some commentaries on that. So um, why don't you actually kind of give the genesis of this article because it has a lot to do with Robert Riley's book. Yeah. And, and so kind of set the foundation, if you will, for this article. Yeah, I was reading a book called uh, The Closing of the Muslim Mind by Robert Riley, who's, I'm guessing, a neoconservative uh, political thinker. He's been head voice of America and so on. He also seems to be a Catholic. 
I'm guessing he is just from his constant invocation of St. Thomas Aquinas and so on and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and he holds to a really, really uh, strongly rationalist view of religion, uh, citing the early Thomas, well, the Thomas almost up to the end of Thomas's life. Gotcha. And, uh, and, and a, a particular Muslim writer by the name of Qadi al-Jabbar, who, whom I have actually spent some time with. I translated a, a portion of some of his writing for an Oxford volume a number of years ago. And um, so I was struck by that. And I was struck by his argument that basically, you know, you have to arrive at a knowledge of the existence of God by reason, speculative, demonstrative, syllogistic reasoning, uh, before you can even countenance the idea of revelation. And I thought, you know, first of all, it seems really elitist to me. Thomas was a genius. Hadi Abdul-Jabbar was probably extraordinarily intelligent too. But what about the average Muslim? What about the average Catholic? The, right. the, the Italian peasant and so on? They, they have no access to that kind of reasoning. Surely God can't have created a system where only the intellectual elite can really have justifiable faith. Uh, but at the same time, I was reading an article in, um, in National Geographic about the hunt for extraterrestrial life. And, uh, and also, I happened to have been reading one in Scientific American at the same time on the same theme. And they were looking at extremophiles and possible existence of microbes on, this, on the Jovian moons and, and that kind of thing. Um, but then there was mention of Frank Drake, who's the sort of father of SETI research, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and his famous Drake equation. And, and he's a radio astronomer now in his mid-80s who's, who's still hoping for a radio transmission from outer space, which would, it said, trump everything. And it occurred to me, yeah, that's, that's my position. Yeah, you can use um, intellectual academic proofs to try to build up a case for God, and they're worthwhile, especially for people who haven't had a deeply spiritual experience or who are wondering about the question. But surely, uh, a direct, powerful revelation would trump everything, as as Drake says, a, dr- a signal from from interstellar space would trump any search for microbes. Um, right. You don't have to. You don't have to kind of put together a chain of evidence to argue for extraterrestrial life if they're communicating with you. If you know they're, they're there, yeah. And God is the ultimate extraterrestrial in a way. So I thought, <laughs> well, if you if you had, if you yourself received an unmistakable divine revelation. You wouldn't need to argue, does God exist or not? I mean, after Moses saw God face to face, Moses wasn't wondering, gee, I wonder if there's a philosopher out there who can help me with the question of whether God exists. And, um, and so I cite Pascal and others in that article who, who had direct experience as they saw it with the divine, and for them at least. The question was settled. They don't need to go through Thomas's five ways of proving God or anything like that. And I tell the story, which I'm very fond of at the end, of Thomas himself, who uh, just four months before he died is saying mass at, uh, at a Dominican chapel near Naples. And he pauses for a long time, an excruciatingly long time. The audience is getting really nervous. Like what's Everyone's wrong? worried, what is wrong? Why is he not doing anything? Well, then he resumes and he finishes, but he never writes another line. And this is a guy who dictated literally thousands of pages of material over his relatively short lifetime. And his assistant kept saying, you know, come on, we've got to, we've got to finish the book we're working on. Thomas says, no, I'm not interested. After what I've seen, everything I've written is just straw. 
and he never writes another line. Well, to me, it's obvious that he'd received some sort of revelation. He was a very good man. I don't doubt that he did. And, uh, and that trumped everything again. He didn't need to argue anymore. He'd seen. He knew. And for him, that was enough. Well, that brings up a question, though, to the, to the average Latter-day Saint, because we are speaking of a gospel that Jesus Christ went to those humble, the poor. These were not considered the elite minds of their day. So we're dealing with a gospel that certainly wants to approach everyone. Yeah. So how then does that correlate to maybe perhaps some of the discourse that we find today, either online, in the media, with respect to the role of faith which some consider maybe even blind faith or uneducated faith, with respect to reason. Yeah, you know, in writing this, I wanted to be careful to stress that I'm not discounting the role of reason. I think think even uh, when you are confident that you've got a a revelation in hand, you still have to use your mind to understand what it means, and it's still very possible for us to misunderstand a revelation, to misapply it, and so on. You sometimes have to decide, is this really a revelation? Right. you you never divorce reason from experience, never. To me, it's an artificial thing. It's to borrow a metaphor from C.S. Lewis, who was talking about faith and, and uh, works, but it applies here too, asking whether you should go by experience, a religious experience, or by reason is like asking which blade of the scissor you should use to cut. <laughs> uh, you have to use both. You can't take them apart. It doesn't work without both together. Um, so to my mind, I'm not saying that the reason isn't important and it depends on where people are and, and everybody is, is different. It's not just that we're at different levels. I don't want to use that, that language of level. It's not a matter of being higher or lower. It's that everybody's different. Some people need more reason, less experience. Some people see experience just as sentimentality, but they, they need evidence. Others don't care that much about the evidence. They're, maybe they're not educated enough to evaluate it, but, but they want a sense that this makes sense, that you know, they want the satisfaction. And we believe that, um, that the spirit actually can communicate with people and that people can know things without having a rational basis. I, I've personally experienced that, not just on grand religious issues, but where you just suddenly know that something is going to happen or you understand something. If you were asked to lay out your reasons, you don't have sufficient reasons, but you know, nonetheless, sure. uh, that this is going to happen or that's what's happened here or you know, something like that. We are not pure reasoning machines. It's a, it's a mixture of both. So is reason still important today? Yeah, we have to defend the faith against attacks because some of them look plausible. Some of them, many of them are, are bad, but not all are. Some are serious. They raise serious issues. You have to be able to counter them, or if not to counter them, at least to neutralize them or to show that they're not lethal. Uh, reason still has a place there. I wouldn't be involved with the Interpretive Foundation if I thought reason had no place in, um, in studying revelation, authenticating and defending revelation and so on. It still has an important role. Yeah. To give an example, there's a quote that you give, and actually it's, it's from Riley's book that says, uh, quote, For, uh, reason first needs to establish the existence of God before undertaking the question as to whether God has spoken to man. Natural theology must be antecedent to theology. Now, on the surface, some of that actually can sound kind of convincing. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel entirely out of place right. to, to come to some reasonable conclusion that there could even be a God. Yeah. Um, but you find this problematic 
And and I guess on some level, how then does one come to an understanding of God if it isn't through reason? Yeah. Well, I'd never say it isn't through reason because reason clearly plays a role. We're reasoning about things all the time, all the time. I came into this place, had to decide, do I go forward, right or left? You know, I'm thinking about it. What's the most reasonable way to go? You cannot, unless you're comatose, you cannot <laughs> turn off your, your mind. Uh, and you shouldn't. I'm not advocating that. Um, well, yeah, you quoted the passage from Riley where he says you have to have, you have, to have established the uh, existence of God before you can decide whether you receive Yeah, why is that a prerequisite? I don't see it as a prerequisite. I can see that it might be for some people. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying there are many roads. I'm not saying there are many roads to God, like everything is equal. But there are individual paths to coming to the right road, depending on where we are. There's, a, there's one main kind of superhighway, but we're living in different places. And to get to that highway, one may have to go east, one west, you know, whatever. And, um, and so for some people, it may be that a kind of natural theology is what does it, you know. And it could be as simple as looking at a sunset and saying, this is just too beautiful. I can't believe that this is pure chance. Or it could be looking at something more sophisticated, more subtle than that, like the evidence for fine-tuning at the beginning of the universe. There are people out there, um, not especially religious conventionally, like uh, oh Paul Davies, who's this Anglo-Australian physicist who bops around. He's been at Cambridge. I think he's in Arizona now. You know, he has come to a kind of religious view, and he says, for him, the scientific path has been more certain than the religious one. He looks at the universe, the way it's put together, the fine-tuning of it, the precision of the laws and so on. He cannot believe there was not intelligence uh, at the beginning of this. I'm not even sure he considers himself a Christian. I'm pretty sure he doesn't. But for him, that has been a path to a kind of belief in God or something like God. Some higher power. Yeah, I mean, even even someone like Sir Fred Hoyle, um, great atheist physicist of the 20th century, you know, complained actually. He was kind of upset. He said, looks like some super intellect has monkeyed with the physics. It made him uneasy. He didn't like the idea of a god, but he began to suspect that there might be one or something anyway that we would consider god. So for some people, that's a legitimate path. But for others, again, I say if a spectacular revelation comes to you, if God comes to you in a grove and speaks to you, you're not left anymore with the question, I wonder whether God exists. Now, you might go to somebody else and he'll say, I don't believe you, show me some proof. That's fine. He's in a different place. But for you, for someone who's had that experience, well, for me, the question is definitively settled. Right. And it doesn't have to be a first vision experience. It could be something else. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, who's a really eminent uh, philosopher of religion, evangelical at Notre Dame, has argued that, um, that, that ordinary believers has, have what he calls proper warrant for believing because there's an innate sense, what um, Calvin called the sensus divinitatis, the sense of the divine that's, that's in everyone. And... Uh, it may just be an instinctual certainty that God exists. And he says, that is not illegitimate. Others may need more than that, but some don't. And they're okay. They're, they're within their rights to move forward on that, on, that, on that basis. And that would be the light of Christ to yes. use in Mormon terms. Yeah, it would be. It's, it's exactly what we're talking about. So let me see if I can give you perhaps a, a metaphor that might help explain the relationship. And you can tell me, right, wrong, how you might reformulate this metaphor. But we have this, I'll call it a problem in front of us, and that is reconciling the role of reason 
and faith with respect to religion. Yeah. What we know versus what we don't know and balancing those two. So we do have in Alma 32 the discussion of faith as a seed mm-hmm. that would grow up. Yeah. Would reason then be the fertilizer for that seed or the soil under which that seed is yeah. able to grow? Yeah, you could describe it that way, I think. That um, you know, one of the ways you feed and nourish the seed is by is by providing evidence for it. You know, when I go out and give lectures, for example, on evidence for the gospel, most of the people in the audience, I would guess, overwhelmingly the majority are believers. But a lot of times they'll come up to me afterward and say, oh, thanks, that was really helpful. Now, it's not because they were having a crisis of faith. Some in the audience might be, but for most of them, probably not. But nevertheless, it helps them. It helps to nourish the seed. It gives it a sure. little more water and so on. It, it it helps it to grow. And that's not at all illegitimate. So even though, let's just say, if it was faith is the seed and reason is the soil, you you believe that that faith can't grow up without even right. some reason. Right. It has to be there just as much. You know, for example, if you've had an experience that you think was something with the divine, but all the evidence seems to be against it, at some point, and it's it'll differ from person to person and situation to situation, but at some point you may say, oh, I must have been wrong. You know, if you, th- to take it out of the religious realm, if you think you saw so-and-so at your party, but people come to you and say, well, but he was in... Tasmania at the time, or, you know, he actually died five years ago, uh, then you may say, well, I must have been mistaken. So at a certain point, if, if you're going to go on believing that you saw so-and-so at the party, someone has to come back and say, no, that was a different John Smith who died five years ago. That's a different Jane Doe than the one that's living in, uh, in Tasmania. You have to have reasonable counter-arguments. Uh, otherwise, Otherwise, even a powerful experience can eventually be doubted uh, if, if you're just convinced, I must have been hallucinating. I must have been, I must have been crazy. This is impossible. Um, so you have to nourish the seed. You can't just, you know, it isn't just planted once, then you go away and forget it. Well, and part of what I was thinking with that analogy that, that came to my mind was there are many seeds that people plant in the soil of reason. Yeah. And they will all grow up to be something different. So yeah. it's a matter of first planting that seed of, of faith That's if right. you want to grow up to that faithful conclusion. Yeah. Now, with with kind of bringing this back to the beginning, your article actually brings it back to the idea that you're bringing this whole concept of reason and revelation forward because this is the foundation that the interpreter was was based upon. Right. And, and this premise that both reason and revelation have their place in determining truth. So with that being said... Now that you have that established as part of what you're doing with the interpreter, how then does the interpreter move forward from here? What's the next steps for the interpreter? <laughs> well, I hate to say it, but on a really crass level, one of the next steps is to raise more money for it. <laughs> Yet, um, we, we are not in a crisis by any means, and people have been very generous. But this, uh, we have now published four books through Eborn Books. We are looking at our plan for next year, and we're looking at as many as four to six next year, next calendar year, so 2015, we're looking at putting on probably two different conferences, maybe three. Those all cost money. And so sure. there, there's a lot coming, but we're going to have to do some fundraising to, to see that, that those things um, uh, come about and that they're adequately funded. We're, we're functioning almost entirely on the basis of volunteer labor. And um, 
we've probably been exploiting that about as much as we can. There's some things you just have to pay for. Sure. And uh, so we've got to raise some money to do that. And I might mention too something else that I'm that I'm doing personally. It's not a part of the Interpretive Foundation, but I'm involved in a project that uh, will take a lot of money. Uh, but the idea is to put together a series of films arguing for the rationality of belief in God, first of all, Christian Christianity, the Christian version of theism next, and finally the Mormon Christian version of theism. But that's going to involve filming in Europe, uh, interviewing people there, sure. uh, in the Americas in England and, and across North America. Uh, and so that's another project that I'm involved in. And the idea, again, is reason doesn't supplant faith, but reason can be really useful. And, and I'll just tell you a personal story. I've told it before. Uh, my own father joined the church the night I was set apart as a missionary. I was able to baptize him, my wow. brother, to confirm him. And um, part of what brought him, he'd been exposed to the gospel for a long time, but had been pretty resistant. But he finally began reading some Hugh Nibley. And I remember him telling me at one point that, in retrospect that the thought had finally hit him, could this possibly be true? Um, and <laughs> once that, that opening is there, you know, then then there's a possibility for faith. It isn't faith, but it can open the door for faith. It can open the window so the light can come in. And uh, and so that's one role that interpreter plays, you know, and these other things, this film project that I'm wanting to do that right now we call the deliberate universe or that I've wanted to call the reasonable leap into light. Um, and, uh, you know, they can't replace a gift of a testimony, which is a divine bestowal, but they might create the openness of mind that will allow you to get a testimony. That fertile place. Yeah. If you believe, here again, reason, revelation. If you believe that uh, that the gospel is no, no more likely to be true than the claims of the Flat Earth Society, you're not going to ask. Your mind is not open. It's got to be what William James calls a live option. If it's a dead option, then you're not likely to ask. God may come down and beat you over the head with a two by four, <laughs> as he did to Saul on the road to right. Damascus, but uh, but uh, but he probably won't. And the, you've got to get to a position where you think to yourself, you know, again, as my father put it, this could actually be true. I need to find out. Yeah. So, well, what are those titles again? You said you've published four. Well, we've done a couple of books on Temple Insights and, and so on. We did one called Samuel uh, by Samuel Zinner on First and Second Enoch. And then there's the book by Jeff, Ch uh, Jeff Bradshaw and, and David Larson in God's Image and Likeness, which is a big, lavishly illustrated coffee table kind of book. And uh, although it's got plenty of text in it too, it's not just for coffee tables. One of my tables. favorites, yeah. yeah. But those are the four thus far. But we've got, uh, I was just talking with someone about another book this morning that we're going to put forward into production. We've got, um, we've got still uh, a conference that we did about a year ago on, on Mormonism and science. We have the papers for that that we're planning to put into, uh, into a volume. The question is how many illustrations. There were some gorgeous illustrations, oh. but it ups the cost of the book. Sure. So, so we're worrying about that. And we've got some others out there. Uh, including one that I'm not at liberty to disclose. Ooh, fun. So it will be honoring somebody that doesn't know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, very fun. Excellent. Well, thank you again. Uh, Daniel C. Peterson is the chairman and president of the Interpreter Foundation, uh, found at mormoninterpreter.com. A uh, link to that article that we have discussed here, Reason, Experience, and the Existence of God, will be found at the posting for this episode at blog.fairmormon.com. Thank you again for coming in. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Articles of Faith with your host, Nick Galetti. This has been a production of Fair Mormon. This and other podcasts are available at fairmormon.org. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of Fair Mormon or The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Please subscribe to our show in iTunes. Questions or comments can be sent to podcast at fairmormon.org. Tune in each Monday for another episode of Articles of Faith. Thank you for listening.